Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 19. I want to speak on the theme, a profitable servant. I've already been told as I was greeted coming to the church this morning that I've got my task cut out for me. People are interested to find out how all 19 verses are a cohesive theme. And so we shall find that out in just a few moments. Luke chapter 17, beginning with verse 1. I'm reading from the New King James Version. Then he said to his disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. I, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck, and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. So the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once, sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise, you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, We are unprofitable servants. We've done what was our duty to do. Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Then as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers, who stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So when he saw them, he said to them, Go, show yourselves to the priest. And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. So Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. I want to begin this morning by asking you a very important question. Would you prefer to be a servant of the Most High who obeys Him or a servant that delights him. Now, you might think, well, it's the same thing. There's no distinction, all contraire. That's what this whole text is about. 
Jesus desires from you more than just your obedience. Frankly, he delights in your delight in him. And that's what Christ wants to teach us here in this text. Jesus makes a distinction between a legal obedience and a loving obedience. And once again, it's very difficult for us here to understand that. We are such a performance-driven people. We are a people who are given to the natural tendencies of our humanity. That's just a nice way of saying we are given to our flesh. And flesh looks at performance. Everything is gauged by it. And if we seemingly obey what God requires of us, then have we not done our duty? Have we not done all that is asked of us? Certainly that delights God. And Jesus emphatically states to his disciples, that doesn't delight him. And I'm sure that that is a strange thing to hear from a Christian pulpit in a Christian church, a Bible-believing church at that. That God does not delight in sheer, mere obedience. No. In order for you to see that this is what our Lord is teaching you, you first have to understand Luke's purpose and method. In in the Gospel of Luke, you'll need to turn, but just listen in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, Luke tells us what his his methodology will be as he writes to a man named Theophilus. He says there in verse 1 of the first chapter, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, meaning there were others who had written Gospels. We know three of them, don't we? Matthew, Mark, and John. And Luke would be one of the four Gospels. He says in verse 2, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word deliver them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you, now pay attention, an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Luke tells you his purpose. His purpose is not just to give you a chronological biography of the life of the Lord Jesus, but rather to teach Christ and his gospel in order to assure this man Theophilus of the kingdom of God. He needed to help Theophilus see the heart of the king of the kingdom, and that is the gospel, the very heart of our king. And so Luke will share some things out of sequence rather than in a chronological order. Mostly it is chronological, but Luke assembles his gospel in a more thematic description or way. He'll give our Lord's teaching, and then he will follow it with something from the life of our Lord Jesus that demonstrates what he taught. Let me give you an example of this. In Luke chapter 6 and verse 27, Jesus teaches that we should love our enemies. Here's what he says. But I say to you, love your enemies, do good to those that hate you. And then immediately in chapter 7, after he finishes that sermon, 
What's the very first thing we see illustrated or demonstrated in chapter 7? Well, it's the healing of the Roman centurion's servant. There was no greater enemy to Israel than the Romans. And here was this occupying centurion, an enemy of Israel, even though he had personally been good to Israel. He was considered a Gentile dog, one outside of the covenants of promise and hope, and therefore an enemy. And what does God do? What does Christ do? He practices what he taught in the sermon earlier. He loved his enemies and did good to them. Now, let's go back to the text in the 17th chapter, verses 1 through 4, which is the first section that we're going to look at. And here we see a warning concerning offenses and a command how to deal with them, either by rebuke or restoration. Verse 1, then he said to the disciples, it's impossible that no offenses should come, meaning... There's going to be somebody eventually going to do something or say something that offends you. It's going to wound you. That's going to happen. That's life, as we say. But Jesus then says, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Now this is Jesus' warning to his disciples. And I want to remind you that the word of God is alive. It's still a living book. Which means that Jesus is speaking to you. This is His word to you this morning. And He's warning us this warning because of His controversy with the scribes and the Pharisees in chapters 15 and 16. That's the context. He's been in debate with them. They've challenged Him. Chapter 15, because He associated with sinners. And then in the 16th chapter, He has to deal with their pharisaical hypocrisy. And so now he turns to the disciples and he says, woe to you. Be careful. Take heed to yourselves. Don't be like these men. Yes, offenses are going to come just like these Pharisees who put these obstacles in the paths of sinners in order to enter into the kingdom of God. But be careful. Don't let that happen to you. And if a brother or someone sins against you, well, you, you reprove him, and if he comes back and he repents, even seven times in a day, you forgive him. Don't be like the self-righteous Pharisees who are long on judgment and, 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 and never find it in their hearts to be merciful. That's what he's saying to them. Don't be self-righteous. Humble yourself. Forgive. Because does it not take humility to forgive people who sin against you? Doesn't it take something of, of yourself to lay yourself down and be willing to be trampled upon? I mean, that's just totally contrary to the way we are and the way we're constituted. And yet Jesus is saying this is what my followers do. And of course, after hearing that, there is a response that's quite understandable from the apostles. Look at verse 5, and we see the disciples' response. And the apostles said to the Lord, 
increase our faith. Now, we should applaud their request. But at the same time, you should see the weakness that this request reveals. You see, Jesus often referred to these men, his own apostles, as men of little or weak faith. How many times did he castigate, rebuke them for their small and inferior faith? And so, even though we applaud them that they came and asked, Lord, increase our faith, at least they understood where faith came from. That's good. But it refer, it, it also shows us the very shallowness of these men. Because what they heard Jesus say, if a brother sins against you seven times and he comes back seven times in one day, you're to forgive him. Because after the third time he does this and you've forgiven him, you kind of scratch your head and say, I don't think he's very repentive. I don't think he's very sincere. He keeps doing the same thing. And yet Jesus says, you're to forgive him. And so the apostles' natural reaction is, well, if we're going to do this, if we're going to obey you, we need more faith to trust. And so please give us that. They asked because their faith was faulty and frail and feeble. They knew they couldn't pull that off. They knew they didn't have it within them. How about you? Do you have the wherewithal to be so humble, so selfless that you are ready to forgive? Long on mercy? Giving? This is the question. These men knew they weren't. And we also know this because of our Lord's answer to their request. Look at verse 6. Our Lord responds, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now here, again, on first appearance, it looks like a very encouraging answer. But the truth is, it's a rebuke. It really is. And I say that because Jesus has said something very similar to these same men two other times. One was when they failed to cast out the demon out of the epileptic boy in Matthew chapter 17. I'm sure you remember that. Jesus was on the mountain of transfiguration. Peter, James, and John was with him. And the other nine was at the foot of the mountain trying to cast out the demon out of this sick boy. And then Jesus comes down and he delivers the child from the demon. And they ask him, why couldn't we do this? And he said, because of your faithlessness. He says, because you didn't have faith. And he said, if you just have faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, not mulberry tree, but there it's recorded as a mountain. So there it was a rebuke. And the other occasion we find Jesus saying the same thing is in Mark 11. In Mark 11, they have little to no faith, and they are astonished by the miraculous writhering of the fig tree. Jesus passed by a fig tree, Hungry, thinking there should be figs because it was leaved out. But finding no figs, he curses the tree. The next day they pass by and they are astonished and say, Look, Master, the fig tree you cursed yesterday is withered dead today. And once again, he repeats this same thing and says to them, The problem, guys, that you can't see and understand is because your faith is so little. If you just had faith the size of a mustard seed. And I believe, once again, he's doing the exact same thing. And when Jesus says to them, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, well, how large is that? 
I wonder, has anybody in this audience ever seen a mustard seed? They're very, very small. I mean, they're, they're not microscopic. You don't need a microscope to see them. But they are very, very tiny. And Jesus says, well, if you just had faith the size of this, well, what's he mean by that? Well, he does not mean the quantity of your faith. He's not saying if you had faith so little as a mustard seed. Oh, well, perhaps, yes, true, he is saying that. But the point is not really the quantity, but the quality. Jesus is literally saying, if you had pure faith, you had the right kind of faith. The faith that has me as the object alone. You wouldn't need but a little mustard seed size. We would say it in our idiom this way. If you had faith, just a drop of it. Why, you could say to the mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and cast in the sea, and it would do it. So Jesus' rebuke here is not concerning the size of their faith, but rather the quality of their faith. There was something about the faith of the disciples that was askew, just not right. Oh, yes, they had faith, enough faith to to leave their homes and their jobs and to follow Him for three and a half years. They had enough faith to believe that He was the promised Messiah. But that's about it. And even it's polluted to some degree. And that's what Jesus is dealing with here. That's why they're asking, Lord, You tell us to forgive like that. We need we need more faith. And Jesus says, no, you just need the right kind, a pure kind of faith. And then Jesus illustrates it in verses 7 through 10. They are connected here. The parable that he tells, the story, is very much in connection with what has been discussed prior. Look at verse 7. Jesus here tells a story of a man who has evidently just one servant. It's all he has, a slave, one Because it's the same slave working out in the field that now is going to prepare his dinner. A wealthy man, if he had more than one servant, he would have his field hands and then he would have the household servants. This man evidently just has the one. And he says to them, which of you having a servant plowman or tending sheep will say to him when he's come in from the field, come at once, sit down to eat. I fixed your dinner, come on, have You've worked hard today. Let me show you my gratitude. But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he think that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I love how Jesus says this. I think not. So likewise, you, when you have done all those things which you're commanded, say we're unprofitable servants, we have done what was our duty to do. Three questions with three reasonable answers. No, yes, and no. Is he going to come in from the fields and say, I've prepared dinner for you, you sit down and eat first? No. Is he rather going to say to the servant, you prepare my dinner, and then after I get done eating, you can eat? Yes. And he's... The last question, is he going to thank him for doing all that he's done for him? And the answer is, no, doesn't thank him. He's not entitled to do, to receive thanks. Why? 
He's a slave. He's simply doing what he is supposed to do. Serve the master. Now I know we here in the south, we are more hospitable and kind people. And we find that kind of offensive. That old man can't say thank you, even to a servant. But that's the culture of the day. The illustration is often used, I think, wrongly to teach that we should say we're nothing but unprofitable servants from the Lord. Well, we are. I mean, let's be transparent. There's not much to us, and everything we have accomplished for God or will ever accomplish, it's His grace in us. Amen? So, yeah, in and of ourselves. But Jesus here is not encouraging humility, although He does encourage it at other times. He's not saying, boys, just realize at the end of the day, you serve me, and that's a privilege of grace. Therefore, consider yourselves lowly and call yourselves unprofitable to display your humility. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. I know that this text has been used this way through the centuries, even by some of God's choicest servants. But that's not the purpose of the illustration. That's seeing the illustration unconnected for what has already occurred in the discussion at hand. No, here's what is happening. Jesus is encouraging not humility here, but an obedience that goes beyond doing what is required. Jesus is saying to those men, don't just do what I've told you to do. In other words, the illustration is about a cold and calculated slave who does barely enough to comply. He only does what's required, so it'll be well with him. He won't be into, he won't get into trouble. And he doesn't do any more than what's required because he doesn't want to put himself out for his master. He doesn't want to be punished for not doing enough, and he doesn't want to put himself out and do more. He's merely looking out for himself. Now, the text, the grammar, the wording actually tells us that this is the way we should interpret the parable. For example, the word unprofitable servants is only used two times in the New Testament. The other time is in the scripture reading we had in Matthew 25. That's why I asked it to be read today. It's only used two times. And there in Matthew chapter 25, verse 30, it is used for one of the three servants, the one who buried his talent because of his laziness. That's what Jesus called him, a slothful, meaning lazy servant. And in verse 30, it says that the master gives instruction, cast the unprofitable servant, or if you have an ESV, worthless servant, into outer darkness there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The only other time the word is used, the term is used, is with a man who's condemned to eternity, separated from God, to a worthless. The word literally means useless. So do you really think Jesus was encouraging his apostles to say, we're a bunch of useless, worthless servants? I don't think so. Rather, what Jesus is saying is, if you just simply do your duty, no more, no less, because that's what's required of you, then you are worthless 
to me. You are a useless servant. Now, some of you don't agree with me yet. That's fine. I understand that. But let me give you further evidence. In Luke chapter 12, verse 37, we see another parable. And it's much like this parable, only a little different. In Luke chapter 12, verse 37, It's a parable of what will happen to all of the saints of God, you and I, when we get to heaven. Here, the master in this illustration is Christ. And when he returns, what will he do? He will not say to us, fix my supper, and after I have eaten, then you may have yours. No, no. No, when we finally see Jesus, He is going to welcome us to His table where He will seat us and serve us. That's what the text says. Blessed are those servants whom the Master, when He comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that He will gird Himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. The illustration in Luke 17 is warning the disciples of a legal obedience. Being a servant to a master who is unappreciative and severe, who does not express any kind of gratitude or delight in his servants. And if you approach service to Christ in that manner, how can you glorify Him? In other words... How can God be seen by the world as a wonderful master, a gracious God, a good God who treats us better than we deserve if we act as if He's just the opposite, merely doing what we are asked to do and not even enjoying what we do? That's what He's dealing with here. You mean, Lord Jesus, I've got to forgive This man, this woman, who in one day does the same thing seven times, I've got to forgive them each and every time. And on another occasion, Jesus said to Peter, who had said, Lord, if I forgive seven times, where did he get the seven? He got it from this very teaching. And he says, okay, okay, if I do that, have I done it? Have I, have I pleased? Have I, have I, have I satisfied? And Peter wants to self-congratulate himself. And Jesus says, I tell you 70 times 7. The point is not how many times, Peter, get this in your mind. No, it's the heart with which you do it. And so you see, obedience can be given in such a way that it has nothing to do with the Master, but all about you what you gain, what you will get in return. And Jesus wants you to hear me. He wants you to hear Him. That's useless. That's worthless service to Him. There are so many people in Christian churches who that's that's their Christianity. They are mere legal servants. They approach God as a judge, as a master, simply knowing that He's more powerful than them 
And they will never be able to skate because He's the omnipotent, all-knowing God. The all-seeing eye sees all. He knows everything. I've got to comply. I better do what He requires of me. If not, it won't go well with me. And therefore, they live with a semblance of obedience to the Word of God. They may even get involved in ministry. I've told you my testimony. That's what I was doing, preaching all of those 11 years before I was truly converted. I was trying to comply. I was trying to comply better than the average church member, but it was still about doing my duty in such a way that I would not incur the wrath of God. The disciples... We're just like that. Oh, I still agree with you. They are regenerated men, but dear friends, even regenerated believers can backslide into this legal obedience, just doing what's required of us, going through the motions, doing the routine. How many of you here this morning, you're here simply because of the time and of the day of the week it is. It's what's required. It's what's expected. Well, you say, no, I'm here for better reasons than that. I I want to be here. Yeah, but I ask you, is your heart here? Or is it simply because it's become a holy habit? You see, when it becomes that and that alone, no exuberance, no enthusiasm, well, then your heart has lost the quality that Christ is looking for. The disciples, weren't they always arguing who's going to be the greatest, right? Competing for thrones next to Jesus. Not even being subtle, but just come out and ask Him. Listen to Matthew 19.27. When Peter said, See, we've left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? Oh, how that question must have wounded the heart of our Lord Jesus. Surely it proves that the apostles did not understand or realize who Christ really was. They didn't rightly value or appraise Him. For if they had, they would have already known they had the best. They had Jesus. And isn't that true of of we who do know Him? Heaven is not going to be the best. We've already received the best. The prince, the king of the kingdom resides within us, in us. He dwells with us. He abides with us. And we with Him. We fellowship with Him. We know Him. We've been brought into His His circle of friendship. We've been brought in to the, the place of intimacy. Come on now, tell me. Can walls of jasper and streets of gold and gates of pearl compare to the beauty of our Christ? No, not at all. I tell you, all of those physical things that I believe will be real, they will only point us back to the King Himself who is the prize. He's the prize. We've left all and followed you. What do we get? How that was like a knife in the heart of our Savior. Obedience stripped of love and joy is absolutely useless. That's the point here. Listen, as hard as it is for us to understand, it was the minimal duty of the disciples to forgive a brother who had apologized. 
They shouldn't have commended themselves for doing so. They were simply doing what he said, what was required of them. But Jesus doesn't want them to do just what's required, nor does he want you to do just what he requires or commands minimally. He wants you to do his will, not like a slave, but like a son. He wants you to do his will, not cold and calculated, but joyfully, enthusiastically. Why? Because he's worth it. He's worth it to you. You found your precious. You found your great lover. You have found the one who's captured your heart. Oh, this is what happens in marriages, isn't it? We once felt that way about the other. We felt like this was it. This is the person I can't, I don't want to ever be outside of their presence and fellowship. I, I'll adore them till the day they die. And what happens with time? Life happens. And the natural tendency of the carnality of our emotions comes right back home. Back to us. And all we can see is what I get out of the relationship. Oh, this is what Jesus is trying to say to them. And then he demonstrates it in the healing of the ten lepers. Now Luke's going to put it into real life and demonstrate what Jesus is trying to say to us. Look at verse 11. Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem. I hope you don't mind me keep reading the same scripture. I mean, it is a Bible-believing church, right? The Bible should be the predominant thing of any sermon, correct? Good. I just thought of that. I just wondered, well, I've read this text already once, and now I'm reading it again. I, I, I didn't think that would bother you here at Redeemer. Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. This is, this is the final trip to, Je- to Jerusalem where he will be crucified. Then as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers who stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So when he saw them, he said to them, Go show yourselves to the priest. And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. You know, misery does love company because if the other nine are Jews and they're hanging out with a Samaritan, you know, their, their state of being wasn't very, very good at all. Verse 17, So Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Arise, go your way, Your faith has made you well. I want to ask you a question. We've read it twice now, so you should have it well in mind. Did the other nine, not the Samaritan, the other nine who didn't return, did those nine have faith in Jesus? And the answer is, yes. They got healed, didn't they? Didn't they obey? And in fact, that that's the answer here, isn't it? Where are the nine? 
The answer is, Jesus, they're doing what you told them to do. They're going to show themselves to the priest. They're on the way to Jerusalem. That's what the law of Moses required. A leper who was cleansed could not return to communal living, that means back into society, until he first had showed himself to the high priest. And there the priest would pronounce him clean after examination. They're just doing what the Bible says, plus what Jesus had instructed. They had enough faith to do that. So yes, the answer is, you you thought it was a trick question, didn't you? It's not a trick question. They did have faith. Were they not trusting in Jesus to be healed? Yes. Did they exercise faith when they obeyed Him to go show themselves to the high priest? Yes. I mean, I think it was quite a, quite a bit of faith because when they turned and left Him, they hadn't been healed yet. They actually were obeying Him even without any evidence of healing until somewhere, we don't know where, but somewhere on the road, it happened. It happened. And so, yes. Why then did Jesus commend the Samaritan's faith as if it's different from the other nine? Ah, yes, it is different. His faith is different. And the answer is that his faith was not a minimalistic faith, but a great faith. His faith was not polluted like the apostles' faith. The other nine's faith was adulterated. It obeyed. It had enough faith to do what was in, they were instructed to do, but it wasn't like the Samaritan. Jesus said, remember, if you have the faith the size of what? The mustard seed? That would be sufficient to launch a mulberry tree into the sea. And so, as we begin this chapter with Jesus commanding His disciples not to be like the Pharisees and give offense to weaker ones, but to exercise mercy by forgiving someone who repeatedly sins against them. We see that this was difficult for the apostles to understand or do. And so they asked Jesus for more faith so that they can do what the Master commanded. But Jesus says it doesn't take much faith, indicating that faith of the disciples had to be very weak. Their faith was the faith of a slave, only doing what is minimally required, just like the faith of the nine lepers who did not return, only did what they were commanded to do in order to get their healing. You could say that the nine lepers, their hearts were not into forgiveness, but just simply mere legal compliance. But conversely, conversely, the Samaritans' lepers' faith was filled with something else, an exuberance, a joyful compliance. His faith was larger than the faith of a slave. Look at the last thing Jesus says to the man. What does he say to him in verse 19? He says, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Do you see the word well? I don't know if you're having an ESV. I forgot what the word there is. It's well as well. Well as well. How do you like that? That word well in the New King James is used 110 times. 93 of the times it's translated into the English saved or delivered. Deliverance. Saved. 
Jesus says something about this man's faith. He distinguishes it from the other nine. What is it? What is its quality? That Jesus would actually use a play on words here. Well, let's just go back to the road to Jerusalem. Here are these ten lepers. Can you imagine looking at them? Some of them had just stubs for fingers and toes. Some of them the flesh was rotting. Even as they could look and talk with each other as they made their way to Jerusalem. And then somewhere along the way, all of a sudden, something happens. They all know it happens. They all can see it in each other. And they feel it in their own bodies. Something happens. Their bodies are made whole. Fingers grow back. Toes grow back. Flesh becomes as pure and white as a child's flesh. But something happens to the Samaritan. Something far deeper. For the same power that entered his withered body went deeper than the skin and went down into the inner soul and being of this man. Oh, what was it? It was the power of God. The power of God to save. Something happened to this young man. This man was converted. He was transformed. He, at that moment, believed that this is more than just a good teacher or prophet who had the power to heal. No, at that moment, something became even greater than his healing. It was the Christ who healed him. He was, his heart was filled with a love and a fascination and a delight in the one who healed him that he could not go. He had to disobey. He had to return and fall at his feet. Why? Because his faith was so full and free that he was in love with the one who healed him. You see, that's the kind of faith that Jesus was after in the apostles. And that's the kind of faith he's after in you and me. There is a faith that will say, I better do what he says. Because he's God. And I'll have to face him one day. The books will be opened and my name shall be called. And there before the countless multitude of humanity, I will have to give an account. i got to make sure I've checked every box. I've dotted every I. I've crossed every T. Otherwise, it won't go well for me. You have enough faith to know that God is God and you will stand before Him. A legal obedience. But that's not the kind of faith that saves. You know, I see the baptismal pool is ready. Even obeying Jesus and being baptized does not save. What's he after? He's after a faith, the only kind of faith that blesses him and exalts him. A faith that works through love. You, you, you have heard of that, haven't you? You've heard of Galatians chapter 5 verse 6. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything. That means religious works, doing what you're commanded, keeping the commandments, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. Faith works through love. The faith that honors God is the faith that loves God and is in response to the love of God for you. That's the kind of faith that He desires of us. 
A faith that's exuberant and delights in Him. And nothing can He ask of us that we would not joyfully, willingly submit. That doesn't mean everything He asks of us is easy. And doesn't mean that it might not be a wrestling of the soul. But love, really, love does win out in the end. And you do it joyfully. With grace. With power. Why? Why could men go to the stake to be burned singing the hymns of their faith with joy, pronouncing that though they may be a candle lit, it would be a light that would lighten the darkened continent. And they were glad to do so. Well, I tell you, it's a faith working through love. You do know that Paul, the apostle in the first Corinthians chapter 13 said, and though I have all faith, Well, how much faith, Paul? So that I could remove mountains. There it is again, isn't it? If I had the faith of a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, be cast in the sea, and it would. Oh, if I had all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing, nothing. The kind of faith God is exalted by is a faith that trusts Him because it loves Him. Maybe to help you to see what I'm saying, suppose, suppose I went home with you today and I stayed for several days, but you didn't know I was there. I know that sounds silly, but just pretend with me. What would I discover? What would I hear? What would I see? Husbands. How would you deal with your wife and wives? How do, would you deal with your husbands? Parents, how would you speak to your children? Children, what would be your attitude towards your parents? What would I see in your home? If I could be an observant, a silent Invisible observer. What would I see? Husbands, would I see your wives saying, I think my husband is married to his job and I'm the mistress? Would, would I see deeds and words that do not speak of love? Wives, do, would I see you disrespect your husbands, not honor him? And you'd say to me, but he doesn't deserve it. Well, that's not the point, is it? Children, would I see you gladly, joyfully take out the trash when mom says, son, take the garbage out? What would I observe if I were in your home? Would I see peace and love and joy and tranquility? Would I see God being crowned and reigned in your home? Or would I see, well, I'd just see you doing what you could do the best you could do. Would I, would I hear a wife say within her own heart, I don't want to forgive him, but Jesus says I've got to forgive him. And so we stiffen our spines, we grit our teeth, and we say the words, I forgive you. Is that what I'd hear? Is that what I would observe? Beloved, what Jesus is after in you and me is a kind of servant 
that has been swept up by His mercy, grace, and love that we are willing, eagerly, to do the same for those who wound us. That's what this whole section's about. In every home, every relationship, even between brother and brother, sister and church on a church row, offenses come. Sooner or later, it's going to happen. There's going to be a friction. I've been married 41 years. There's been times where even between my soul's twin and me, my love of my life, an unkind word has taken place. It happens. A fissure, a little crack appears. What happens then? Do I look at myself and see how I've been offended? Or do I see Jesus? And do I see His great love for me? His patient endurance and long-suffering to me? His willingness to be merciful to me? Or do I look at my wife's offense? You see, you've got to get the right perspective here. Faith that's polluted is a faith that often looks to oneself. Your eye is on you, on how well you're performing, how well you're believing. Faith in faith, if you please. But no, our faith is in Christ. He's the object. Maybe the best way to illustrate it here, if I'm standing here and Jesus is standing behind me, four or five feet behind me, and, 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 and you have that perspective standing here, who, who's going to be the predominant one in your vision? I am. Why? Because I'm the one you're looking at. I'm, I'm the focal point. I'm in, I'm in front of your line of sight. And so often when we're wounded, that's what happens. We're the one that's in the line of sight. We see ourselves. We see the wound. We see how it affected us. We, we feel the pain. And we, we say, well, this can't go on. I can't let her talk to me like that. I can't, I gotta show her this is not right. I've gotta balance the books. We gotta have justice here. This cannot continue. Rather than looking beyond your own self and looking unto Christ. Now, are you to forgive her? Are you to forgive him? Yes. But how do you do so? You do so by faith working through love, which means you get yourself out of the way and you look to Christ. And there you remember, you remember that He has been merciful to you far more than this person needs mercy. He's forgiven you of more sins than this person could ever sin against you. And so you say, I forgive you. Yes, I forgive you. What do you mean, would I? If I can find it tomorrow. Oh my, Christ has forgiven me. My wife sins against me and she comes. Well, she didn't even need to come. She shouldn't even have to come. Love covers a multitude of sins. But if she comes and says, sweetheart, I was wrong, would you forgive me? If I'm looking to Christ and not myself and my faith, if I'm not just looking at the command to forgive, but I'm looking at how Christ loves me and forgives me, I'll pull her to myself. Oh, sweetheart, absolutely. There's no question about forgiving you because we've got a Savior that's forgiven both of us more than we could ever sin against each other. I've got a gospel 
that I'm a recipient of. You've got a gospel you've received also. And He's forgiven us of all of our sins. And He's cast them from us. What do you mean forgive you? Yes. And I'll give her the kiss of my lips and the embrace of my arms. Why? So I can say, I've forgiven her. Lord, I did what you asked. No, a thousand times no. Do it. Because I've received that kind of love. And I can't help but give that kind of love when I remember. Well, my friends, this is how these, what looks like disjointed sections of text, are really one. And they say one thing. That we are not to be legal servants, but rather joyful. Joyful sons of the living God. We are not to just to comply and do the quote Christian thing, but rather we do it with exuberance and enthusiasm for our great King. For we, we were far worse than that poor leper. Not only was he a leper, but he was a Samaritan. You can't get much lower than that in the culture in the day of Jesus. What an example of an outcast. Well, I'm preaching as one who was an outcast to a room of past outcast. And I tell you today, we've been healed. And our faith in Him, granted to us by Him, has made us well and delivered us. How can we not deliver our brother, our sister, our husband, our wife, our parents, our children of every guilt and weight of sin against us? Dark was the stain that I could not hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, poured out on Calvary's mount. Crimson tide. Oh, you can be white as snow today. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, blessed is the name of our most high and precious Savior. We worship you. Lord, with grateful hearts, we worship as we remember what you've done for us and are still doing. Oh, how patient and long-suffering you are with me. As our brother led us in prayer today, we still sin, we still grieve and break your heart. Here we are thinking we're doing your will and we are grieving it, violating it. Here we think we're making your heart happy because we're obeying And we're breaking your heart because it's just mere duty. Oh, Father, forgive us. Revive us. We need, we need a move of your spirit to experience fresh love today. And it's in your name I pray that you would pour out love upon the saint and the sinner. Lord, save someone who's never seen how much you love them until today. Because like the Samaritan, you did something in them as well as for them. We ask this in your most holy name. Amen.